Have you been looking for a quality brand of CBD oil and didn't know where to turn? Let me introduce you to Botan CBD. Go to BotanCBD.com, that's B-O-T-A-N-C-B-D.com, and you'll see a full line of CBD oil products. The benefits of CBD oil are plentiful, including pain relief, anti-inflammation, mental clarity and focus, stress and anxiety reliever, and the list goes on. I've been using Botan CBD oil on my sciatica pain, and it makes it disappear. You can rub it on the body or take it orally and you can trust that Botan CBD is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. They are a pharmaceutical grade organic CBD small batch and handcrafted for you. Head on over to BotanCBD.com and use the code Jimmy at checkout for 15% off your first order. Live life well. Botan CBD. Do you like cookies? Jeffrey started Fat Snacks, S-N-A-X, in 2017 to make his keto lifestyle way more delicious. Fat Snacks cookies are soft-baked to perfection using coconut flour, butter, and almond flour. First time I tried these Fat Snacks cookies, oh my goodness, you guys, I fell in love. Plus, they're sugar-free, contain just 1 to 2 grams of net carbs, and have up to 9 grams of fat. Jeff and his team are proud to have become the top-selling keto-friendly cookie, all with just 1 to 2 grams of net carbs per serving. Fat Snacks flavors include chocolate chip, peanut butter, and lemony lemon. And they recommend you start with the variety pack on your first order. Head on over to fatsnacks.com slash Jimmy. That's F-A-T-S-N-A-X dot com slash Jimmy. And use the coupon code L-L-V-L-C at checkout for 5% off of a single order or 10% off of your first subscription order. Fat Snacks Cookies. This show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up the avocados, fry some eggs. Time to explore the longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living Low Carb Show.com. Hey, hey guys, we're back here on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And today I'm very privileged to welcome to the podcast a gentleman by the name of Dr. Mark Pettis. He's a triple board certified internist, nephrologist, and integrative medicine physician who's been practicing for over a quarter century. And he's been out there doing his thing. He's currently serving as the Director of Medical Education, Wellness, and Population Health at Berkshire Health Systems in Western Massachusetts. And in addition, he serves as the Associate Dean of Medical Education at UMass Medical School. He's the author of a couple of books, The Savvy Patient, The Ultimate Advocate for Quality Healthcare, and It's All in Your Head, Change Your Mind, Change Your Health. He's been out there on the speaking circuit and getting all over media. And he's here today going to help us talk about how we can improve the population health with a low carb, high fat ketogenic diet. Hey, I've heard of that before. What's up, Mark? Hey, Jimmy. Great to be with you. And like all of your guests, I, I want to just express my gratitude for all that you do. Your stewardship is noteworthy and it's been an inspiration for me. So great, great to be with you. 
Thank you. And it's been a pleasure to be able to talk to so many great people on this show. Uh, I'm going on 13 plus years now of doing this podcast where I've gotten to talk to amazing researchers and medical professionals like yourself who are out there changing the world one patient at a time. And, and in your case, educating even fellow physicians and, and others within the medical field that nutrition can and should play a huge role in changing the health of our population. Absolutely, Jimmy. And a lot of what I do in my role as a population health director is to try to bring and translate the evidence, so much of which you share with your listeners and the and the first-rate uh, clinician researchers that are at the vanguard of, of this remarkable uh, nutrition health uh, nexus and, and to bring that to the masses. And, and uh, not surprisingly, in our region, we're beginning to see some amazing results. And uh, uh, it's been a great journey. Well, I definitely want to get into some of that results here in a minute. But first, let's back up a bit. Uh, tell us why Mark Pettis decide, decided to become triple board certified. I've never heard that before. You're the first one I've ever talked to that's triple board certified uh, in all of these modalities in the in the field of medicine. What got you interested in medicine? Well, my original uh, training in medicine, Jimmy, was in internal medicine, primary care, and nephrology, uh, like uh, Jason Fung, who I kidney know is well-known. Yeah. Uh, uh, I became a kidney doctor, and really, um, I was sort of a stereotypical uh, young man growing up in the 60s. You know, I was good in biology, good in the sciences, and, uh, you know, culturally, uh, everyone just encouraged you to go into medicine. I had yeah. no None of my none of my uh, direct family had uh, a college education. I was one of the first uh, to have that that opportunity. Uh, and going into nephrology really was a reflection of my love for biology. I'm a bit of a geek, and uh, all of the nephrologists I knew in medical school and in my residency training were just really smart biologists and biochemists, and uh, and had insight around nutrition. Um, but, but it was more in terms of what impacted the kidney and what did you need to restrict? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, it, but it very much was a systems approach to care, which I, which I loved. And then a funny thing happened to me about 10 years into that journey, Jimmy, which was about 20 years ago. And, and both my parents developed kidney failure and it was a, just a very horrible coincidence. Uh, and in retrospect, uh, they both had type two diabetes. Wow. They had hypertension, sort of classic cardiometabolic syndrome, both my parents, and ended up on dialysis. So, so both my parents had end-stage renal disease, and here I was, a kidney specialist, you know, many years into training and practice. And helpless. And helpless. Yeah. Exactly, Jimmy, you know. So I, so I, I, I wore the hat of caregiver, and I wore the hat of being, you know, none of their doctors would make a decision without my blessing. Uh, and yet I was trained to basically understand the medicines that could best help them with their pressure and their sugar and their cholesterol. Right. Yeah. And, and they suffered a great deal and, um, and they died young. My mother was 64. Uh, my father was in his late sixties. Mm. And, uh, so that was an epiphany for me. I, I had this awakening that, uh, much of what consumed their lives and consumed the lives of so many that I cared for in retrospect, appeared to be very preventable. And, and I realized that most of the tools I needed to be more effective in helping people were not given to me. And, and that's when I started, like so many of the, of the people you interview, 
um, this journey of self-education, uh, diving more deeply. I, I transitioned out of nephrology and acquired nutrition as a second language, got into the neurosciences. <laughs> I like that. Uh, you know, I, I got really into uh, epigenetics. And uh, and when the American Board of Physician uh, Specialties finally recognized integrative medicine in 2015 as a quote-unquote legitimate subspecialty, I, I, I sat for those boards and I was able to get through that. So that's the triple board story. And yeah. And really, it, it's a journey, Jimmy, that has just changed everything that I do, my self-care, and certainly how I serve others. Can I ask you what it's like to have gone through the medical education system and knowing all that you know from that whole experience and now being on the other end of it, now kind of uh, in the education business, how frustrating is it to know that you didn't really get a whole lot of this information about nutrition that you've now learned on your own, Mark? How frustrating is it that it's not being taught within the mainstream of medical education? Very frustrating, Jimmy. And I'm in a position now where I, I sit as associate dean of a, of a large medical school that has a great reputation for primary care and, and a growing reputation for prevention. Uh, but there's still very little uh, that emphasizes uh, nutrition, nutrigenomics, Still very little that looks at light and circadian entrainment. The biome is still a, a relatively foreign yeah. concept at that level. And so um, I, I do confront value conflicts uh, every day in my work. And I accept that as a, a manifestation of a well-intentioned system with well-intentioned people who are compassionate and who would do a pretty good job of acute care, you yeah. know, diagnosing disease in hospitals and treating them and and saving people from um, potential mortality that years ago would have been very, very common and almost expected. Uh, and yet we see, as you as you always sort of touch on in your interviews, Jimmy, we see the, one of the sickest generations of Americans ever. We have the costliest health system in the world. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we, we provide very little value uh, for the $3.5 trillion per year that we spend in the healthcare system that um, maybe has prolonged life somewhat, but I, I think has done very little to prevent in a meaningful way uh, diseases from occurring in the first place. And, and really helping people realize that um, all that we do is about is about possibility and helping people realize what's possible in their lives. And, and we still have a lot of work uh, in order to get there. So, Mark, where is the system broken? How can we, if we were to magically fix whatever's broken and make it where that things would get better so that chronic disease rates would go down, obesity would go down, all of the things that have gotten dramatically worse in the past three, four decades, um, where is it broken? Is it at the education system of who's funding this or uh, is it you know, more at the, the point of care where the doctors are giving patients the care itself and they should be continuing education. Where is the breakdown? At, at so many levels, uh, Jimmy, certainly the educational curricula that uh, students and residents get along the way continues to be very much driven by a disease model. And, and while that pendulum is slowly shifting, the emphasis continues to be on diagnostic accuracy and 
essentially disease management. Uh, the, the implication out of the gate is that once a disease manifests, uh, the best you can do is effectively manage it. You know, no one uses the R word, Jimmy. No one talks <laughs> about reversibility. Right. Uh, and so, so I do think there there continue to be uh, perverse uh, incentives that uh, are largely driven by the economics of our of our healthcare. This is a huge market that is, you know, 17, 18% of our gross domestic product and one that uh, continues to be heavily driven by um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, by um, the paying individuals to do more things. And uh, what's interesting about many of those incentives is that they are radically shifting. We, we are at this, at this crossroads, Jimmy, where we can no longer bear the weight, uh, both in terms of of the quality of life, which is diminished for so many in our country, but we can no longer bear the weight of the cost of maintaining this system. So what, what I see happening now is that the financial incentives are shifting dramatically, which is what population health is, is all about. It's about creating value, improving outcomes, helping people live longer, giving them a better quality of life, but trying to radically reduce the cost of care. And now, Doctors get penalized if their patients are in the hospital yeah. or in emergency rooms. Insurers are um, no longer able to generate profit margins because of the of this out of control cost of care. And uh, I, I, everyone who has benefited from these incentive models, I think, is now realizing that um, the monies are going to start to flow in the direction of reducing the amount of expensive care that we offer folks, which so often provides very little in the way of value. And in that, in that proposition, what, what in, in healthcare we now call alternative value propositions, um, the emphasis is on prevention. And now people are saying, wow, everyone should see a dietitian. Mm. Uh, we should be reviewing nutrition with everyone. We need to empower people more effectively than they are because ultimately this is about lifestyle, right, Jimmy? You know, we know that 80% of all chronic complex diseases are lifestyle driven and healthy living doesn't happen in doctor's offices. You know, healthy living doesn't happen in hospitals, healthy living and the road to healthy living is paved by the choices we make each and every moment, how we eat, how we move, how we sleep, how we manage stress, how much love and meaning we have in our lives. And, and, and I think, as these incentives radically shift, everyone is saying, wow, we need to totally gut our models of care and place much more emphasis on what's happening in the home, in the community. Uh, and it's probably going to take a while to turn this beast around, but, um, <laughs> but, but those, are, those are the incentives that I see shifting in a very dramatic way right now. Not because of this fundamental passion for nutrition, but because we're a an enterprise that can no longer afford the path that we're on. So well, whatever the reasons are for turning around, uh, you know, they can only be good. And you're leaving, being left behind because the patients are now learning so much more thanks to the advent of the Internet and podcasts and books and all of the information that's out there that they know more about nutrition than a lot of their primary care physicians ever will unless they learn on their own. And so we're kind of at that day and age where the patient is learning all of this information that but for the internet and books and, and blogs and, and social media, they wouldn't even know about. 
whereas in the past, doctors had have had kind of a monopoly on that kind of information. And that's why we were left in the dark for so long. So I, I agree with you. We are at a crossroads. And I do think that if the medical profession doesn't change what it's doing now and the way it does things now, they're going to be left in the dust by functional medicine practitioners and naturopaths and nutritional experts because they're the ones that are actually going to be making people healthy. And those are the people that aren't under the auspices of having to follow some archaic standard of care, which I think is the monkey wrench in the medical community. That is such a critical point that you make, Jimmy, and and your podcast and so many are, are classic examples of the amount of information that's out there for people to uh, process, to assimilate, to to practice in their own lives. Anyone who's got a Jimmy Moore graduate degree in nutrition education will be infinitely more empowered than what they're likely to get uh, from your traditional clinical settings. And and so I do think we're we're in the midst of this knowledge revolution, unprecedented in our in our in our society that has given people more uh, information than ever. And and I and you and so many of us in this space, uh, really, I see myself as a translator of, of, that, of that knowledge. And the more we can empower people, the better. But you're right. People are going to, people will choose who they feel can best serve them. And, and that's going to very much transform this market. And that's, uh, that's happening. And we cannot devalue all of the technology uh, technological changes that are taking place. I just got the new Apple watch that has an EKG on it. Uh, and so I can, I can, obviously it's not as good as one that you would have in a hospital, but it would give data and we have blood sugar monitors and I'm wearing a ring that helps me track my sleep. All of these things are tools now that patients have at their disposal. And unless the mainstream of medicine kind of keeps up with what's happening in that realm, they're definitely going to be left in the dust. Absolutely, Jimmy. And and all of those tools that you mentioned are providing individuals with more data on themselves that in real time gives them this beautiful connection between a choice that they make and some biologic response that they can then measure, see, experience in resp- as a consequence of that choice. And I think we're going to find that that's going to be a an enormous dimension of, of of people's ability to begin to modify their their self care and you know no, no adult left behind you know this is this is about bringing the power back to the people and technology is is making that possible yeah. Do you ever wonder where your meat comes from? Today, over 80% of beef comes from industrialized processes and companies don't want you to know the source. Now we have a company that cares about where your beef is coming from. They're called CrowdCow. Visit crowdcow.com slash show to learn how they do things differently. They give you full transparency into the independent farms that they work with. And whether you're looking for quality grass-fed beef or luxurious Japanese Wagyu, Crowd CrowdCow is the craft meat marketplace. Food transparency is the wave of the future, and it gives consumers access to both flavor and choice. We no longer have to put up with CAFO beef and industrialized agriculture. It just doesn't have to be that way anymore. Again, they're called CrowdCow, and they source the best quality steaks that you can't get anywhere else in the world. Visit CrowdCow.com slash show, and they'll give you $25 off of your first order. Be informed, know the source, eat better meat, crowd cow.
If you love great olive oil, do I have a deal for you? As one of my listeners, you're entitled to receive for $1, listen to this, for just $1, a $39 bottle of one of the world's finest artisanal olive oils. And what makes this oil really special? It was just fresh pressed at the new harvest, so it's bursting with more harvest fresh flavor than any olive oil you've ever tasted. It's yours for just one buck to help cover shipping as your introduction to the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. And there's no obligation to buy anything now or ever. But what exactly is fresh pressed olive oil? And why is it so much more flavorful than store-bought olive oil? The problem with store-bought olive oils is that they can sit on store shelves for months, even years, growing stale or even rancid. The olive, after all, is a fruit. And olive oil is similar to a fruit juice in that it's much more flavorful when fresh pressed. And that's what's unique about oils from my friends at the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. They rush their oils direct to your door by plane and special delivery truck straight from the latest harvest. This means that you, your family, and lucky guests can enjoy top-of-the-line artisanal olive oils at their peak of harvest-fresh flavor and nutritional value. This is great news for us low-carb lovers because pure, fresh-pressed olive oil has zero carbs. Zero carbs! It adds whole layers of amazing flavor to your favorite low-carb dishes, your roasted vegetables, healthy salads, grilled meats, delicate fish, toasted nuts. Oh yeah! I can tell you from personal experience, once you try this fresh-pressed olive oil, you'll never go back to store-bought again. Try it yourself and see. For your 39 bottle for a buck, go to jimmyoliveoil.com. That's jimmyoliveoil.com. One more time jimmyoliveoil.com. Now, a lot of people that listen to my show, Mark, they're already on board with making changes in their diet and their lifestyle. And so they get it. And yet you talk about population health and that sounds like it's more cumulative, the culture of who's out there. How do we translate individuals like the people that listen to this show uh, and their spunkiness for wanting to make better choices in their diet and health uh, choices how do we translate that into population health? And what is population health anyway? Yeah, really, really great questions, Jimmy. Population health, which is which is uh, uh, the buzz in, in all healthcare establishments these days, is really defined by what the Institute of Healthcare Improvement in Boston, the IHI, as part of national healthcare reform, uh, refers to as the triple aim and the triple aim is this triangle where the apex of the of the triangle is is improving the outcome helping people live longer and and helping them live longer with a much better quality of life right with a with a reduced burden of chronic complex disease um, the other uh, edge of that of that triple aim is uh, reducing cost and so how can we how can we achieve those outcomes without spending so much money that ultimately uh, does very little to provide value for those individuals. And then the third part of that in a population health model is how can you improve the experience of care? How do you empower that individual? How do you create networks of, of resources and support that enable that individual to find traction in their lives? Now, you know, what's interesting, Jimmy, about our, our current models of care, and if you look at the population health research, and a lot of this comes from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, 
University of Wisconsin a Medical School, about 20% of, of how long people live and how well people live, the two greatest attributes that most of us would look at in terms of what we want in our lifetime is influenced by clinical care. It's influenced by the doctors, the hospitals, the, the traditional clinical models. 20%, Jimmy, that is a that surprises most healthcare professionals. But but the data is quite clear that how long you live in any community that you're in will have less to do with how good the hospitals are in your community and how good the doctors are in your community than what most people think. Mm. It's not, not that they're not important, but, but 20%, the, the listeners can just keep that number in mind. So can you explain that 20%? Cause I think I missed it as you were saying, and I was trying to absorb what the 20% meant. What, what are you saying? Yeah. 20% of the factors that influence how long we live and how well we live are a result of the quality of the doctors and the hospitals and the communities ah, that we live in. Gotcha. In response to the chronic diseases and obesity and other things that would pop up in said patients. Yes, Got exactly. It. Okay. Uh, now, about 70, 75% of what influences how long a person lives and how well they live is lifestyle, it's their behavior, as we know that. It's the choices that they make. And the greatest driver of that are what we call the social determinants of health. These are the socioeconomics of a, of a particular community or region. It's the health literacy of a, a community or a particular re region. How, how literate are people? How well do they understand nutrition, food, um, um, environmental toxins. So literacy is an important issue. Transportation. What is the transportation infrastructure in a particular community or region? How pervasive is food insecurity? Uh, so in Western Massachusetts, um, we, we have about 150,000 people. This is not a huge metropolitan market that I'm in, Jimmy, but I can tell you that about one out of five people is food insecure. They do not know where their next meal is going to come from. Wow. We, we, we have about um, 35% of those in our region uh, will not have a, uh, a baccalaureate degree, you know, a full college education. Uh, we have pockets where people are socially isolated. They, they, um, they live alone. They're not connected with their neighbors. Maybe they're not connected with a faith community. So social determinants of health are one of the biggest drivers of how healthy a, a larger population is. And our systems of care in their pharmacologic focus, in their you know, 10, 15-minute mission-oriented visit, um, our, our systems are not set up to address these social determinants. So now we're in this new world order where if you your population is in the hospital all the time and they're in the emergency departments all the time, uh, you're, you're going to lose money substantially unless you can begin to restructure your systems in a way that develop more connection with community-based organizations like the faith community, your local YMCAs, uh, your schools your workplaces. In a population health model, all of those community-based stakeholders become critical 
in developing infrastructure to improve the health and healing of that community. It's less a clinical endeavor and more a, an integration into community settings uh, that focus much more on education, focus much more on um, uh, social supports, focus much more on, on group models, bringing people together so that they, they can support each other, uh, moving away from that sort of one-on-one visit. So um, that, that's a long-winded response, but essentially <laughs> this is about, it, it's understanding that improving the health of a population cannot happen in a doctor's office or in a hospital. It has to involve more integration into community settings and everyone becomes a stakeholder and, and everyone is paying for this, this inefficient system we have. So these stakeholders right. now begin to see that their bottom lines are influenced by the health of their employees. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think everyone becomes a stakeholder in this new world model, but it, you know, it's going to take a while for us to get there. You know, and speaking of that, I've spoke uh, with someone else recently for a an interview for this podcast, and he's a medical professional in the Asheville, North Carolina area, and he had a company come to him, and he's into low-carb diets as well, uh, a company come to him and said, all right, we want to go outside the realm of the insurance uh, uh, company. We don't want this to go through that. We just want to pay you directly to give our uh, employees health care and nutrition care and all that you would do within the realm of what you do with patients. And they're doing it outside of the system, um, so to speak, because they see the value that's coming from people like him and like you and like others that are kind of thinking outside the box of the traditional care, which has failed miserably to prevent uh, future ailments from happening. They see that there's value in that. Do you see that becoming a trend? That's a great example, Jimmy. And I do see that becoming a growing trend. Most larger businesses are self-insured. They uh, assume much more financial responsibility over care management of those employees that are covered under their insurance plans. That's true for the health system, Berkshire Health System, that I work in. We have we have almost 6,000 individuals covered under our self-insured plan. There is now this incentive to develop alternative models that can more directly address root causes of these chronic complex diseases that affect their employees that when effective go right to the bottom line. And in our organization, Jimmy, and I've, I've helped develop with our, with our dietitians, with our uh, uh, clinical social workers and psychologists, holistic models that very much apply an, an, an Eric Westman type low carb, high fat, new Atkins model of weight loss and, and reversing insulin resistance. And, yeah. and we bring sleep hygiene. And, and so we'll have 20 people, um, you know, enter these, these programs, many of whom are on insulin eight weeks later, their, their, you know, their meds are reduced dramatically. Many of them are off insulin. And of course they're not they're not using as much resources in the in the system, and so our system begins to save money. Mm-hmm. So you begin to see how the employer. Uh, this is also true now in in municipalities, school systems that you know, covering insurer for their employees, you know, breaks their back. And so if we can help them develop models outside of the traditional clinical models that can allow them to directly address. Uh, uh, many of these root causes, they can begin to realize not just reductions in their in their expenses, 
But, you know, we all sort of understand that employee performance improves, uh, retention improves, uh, you know, what we often refer to as presenteeism. It's just sort of showing up for work and yeah, providing and joy. your, your minimal discretionary efforts. So all of that, one's capacity for thrive in that workplace begins to dramatically shift. So you really see the value proposition jumping out there. And I do think that's going to be the wave of the future, which is why the Amazons and the and the apples are, you know, they're going to find solutions to this because our, our health system does not seem capable of, of doing so. Well, and even outside the big corporations that do self-pay for health care, I wonder why we haven't seen uh, health insurance companies jump on this bandwagon because they try to be the, in this to make some money, just like everybody else is. You would think, wow, let's go to the modalities where people pay premiums, but they don't go have to go see the doctor so often. And it would seem to me that uh, any approach that would use nutrition that would lower inflammation and lower insulin and blood sugar levels and get people actually healthy, that would be a win-win-win for health insurance companies. Why aren't they on board? And it would seem a no-brainer. I think more insurers are hopping onto the train, Jimmy, in part because they, too, understand that they can't continue to pay claims for diseases for which value is not being demonstrated. Surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly to you, uh, Jimmy, but you know, I deal a lot with um, chief medical officers of insurance companies, medical directors of insurance companies. These tend to be very seasoned, experienced clinicians, most of whom still have very limited knowledge with respect to the power of lifestyle in preventing, managing, and reversing disease. And so what might seem obvious for an insurer to embrace is not necessarily being translated through the clinical leaderships that that drive those organizations. And so, uh, you know, we partner with Blue Cross Blue Shield in Massachusetts to give you a quick example. They are our carrier uh, for our health system. And every year they meet with us and they say, we can't believe how well you're, you're managing the cost of your employees. Your diabetes is going down. Your obesity rates have flattened out. Um, you're not seeing any change year after year. We don't see that in any other business that we're working with. What are you doing differently? And when we (laughs) describe, when I describe what you talk about all the time, Jimmy, there is this sort of perplexed, like, really? Um, So I I don't think the insurance industry uh, has quite caught up with how powerful many of these are, but but that's going to escalate and accelerate quickly because they stand to gain from this now. And I have conversations with insurers today, Jimmy, that I would have never uh, anticipated five, ten years ago. Um, yeah. and, and I do, and I do think we're on the cusp of a, of a rapid uh, turnaround here. I've been podcasting for thirteen years, and thirteen years ago to today is like night and day. <laughs> it's pretty amazing all the changes that have taken place. And one of those changes is over the past couple of years, we've seen keto kind of catch on in the mainstream. Um, how is this spilling over into the doctor realm? Because they have to have heard about it from some of their patients. Is it more just the eye roll of, oh, there here comes Atkins again? Or is it, oh, well, maybe I need to really look into this more? I find much more awareness of this, Jimmy. While there are still some uh, knowledge gaps in the in the power and even the evidence that's available to support 
a, uh, a nutritional ketosis or intermittent fasting ketotic lifestyle, uh, there, I find there is much, much more openness to this. Uh, and it's really important uh, for anyone, you know, I'm in, a, I'm in a system where I know my colleagues, I've known them for years, I have some credibility, I have some trust capital. So when I begin to translate some of this to them, they're much more receptive uh, and and because they're all struggling with how to effectively do this in their practices, yeah. they're all being held more responsible. So if Dr. Smith um, cannot bring those A1Cs down for the one, 100 diabetics in, in his or her practice, they're going to be penalized for it. So there's a, there's a true compassionate desire to want to do better. There's an economic incentive to want to do better. And as a consequence, I, I, I find... Uh, the physician community to be much more open and receptive. And, you know, like any um, uh, early adopter, you'll have some that just jump right in and, and many of them have tried it. They've experienced it. They know how powerful it is. Uh, it doesn't take more than a couple of patients to open those eyes. And and then I think you, you things begin to accelerate. Uh, and then you'll have a, f- a few that will hold out and have some resistance. But I work with our endocrinologists now, um, Jimmy, and out of out of um, uh, formality and respect, I'll let them know when one of their patients is in one of our uh, low carb, high fat, uh, ketogenic programs, and um, they're they're very uh, accepting. And the issue becomes not so much resistance to the model; it's oh, that's great. Let's make sure. They monitor their sugars very closely because mm-hmm. things are obviously going to shift and it becomes more of a safety and monitoring issue more than a, a philosophical resistance. And and I'm seeing more and more of that. Is the cholesterol question still there where they think that total cholesterol and LDL is the be all end all uh, at the expense of triglyceride to HDL ratio, for example, or small dense LDL particles going down? Is that even on their radar screen at all now? It it is still not on the radar. Uh, uh, again, that you know the Jimmy Moore uh, graduate uh, will will have much greater insight there. I I I do think um, there is a softening of emphasis on total cholesterol and LDL. Um, it it and, and I do think the distinction between secondary prevention and somebody who's hospitalized. And, and who has a very high burden of cardiovascular disease, mm-hmm. that becomes a, a very difficult um, uh, practice pattern to, to bend. But for primary prevention, I do find more and more uh, of my colleagues are seeing people who are having statin side effects. And even though they're, they're not as informed as perhaps they could be on triglyceride HDL ratios or NMR profiling, um, you know, it... it the more they learn about it the, and the more uh, results they actually see. And, and again, we do a lot of that in our programs, Jimmy. There's, there's nothing more powerful than having one of their patients in a, in a program that I am facilitating where we can show them before and after lipids. And you just cannot argue with those results. And so it, it, I, I, the, there's still some work to be done there. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the forces of the heart association and, uh, die, you know, the things that you talk about all the time are still very pervasive, but I, I do see that grip loosening somewhat, but, and a lot of it is driven by, by our consumers. You know, they, they don't want statins, uh, when they've tried them, they don't feel well on them. And I think, um, 
there's a, there's a bit of a revolution at hand of 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 the need to be looking at alternative options and yeah. but we're we're not there yet. Well, we are certainly in a day and age where there's a whole lot of people that have come out the other side of the low fat diet era and they're not healthier as a result of it. Even if they've shifted over to doing a low carb, high fat ketogenic diet and metabolically internally all their markers are better, they're still dealing with uh, abdominal obesity. They're still having struggles in trying to get all of that ramifications that the low fat diet brought on healed. Um, is it possible right. to fully heal all of those things or will some people just have to manage the best that they can for the rest of their life with good health markers, but maybe not reach the weight that they desire? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the more we understand the individual, uh, complexity, uh, there are some people who may not realize the optimal metabolic state, uh, that they desire or that their caregivers desire, unless they really can begin to, I think, more effectively address um, the sleep hygiene, the, the stress management. We're learning so much more about the quality or lack thereof of non-native lighting in our environments and how, you know, if, if, uh, if you and I, Jimmy, eat a meal later in the day under, under compact fluorescent blue light, we're going to be more insulin resistant. Our, our postprandial sugars will be higher with that meal under those conditions than uh, eating it lower in the day under more under more full spectrum light. And so I think we continue to learn a lot more about the power of environment and modulating cardiometabolic risk. Uh, and I, I think because the complexity of where so many folks are at from childhood traumas to, uh, you know, so many of these social determinant challenges that unless one can really get a handle on those many complex dimensions of their lives, they may not realize the optimal state that they're looking for. And yet it's so easy to realize uh, significant improvement without necessarily being in that optimal state. And I just try to help people realize that small changes can produce big results and that once they create momentum, it'll give them more motivation to continue to look at you know, this N of one that, that I do think is so important. Oh my goodness. Yes. It's so vitally mm -hmm. important. And I've been doing those kind of tests on myself for many years before we came on the air, you talked about your morning routine with light therapy and vitamin D boosting and infrared sauna. And, uh, and I told you that I add in ice baths to all that kind of stuff as well. So it all makes a difference. It all makes a difference, Jimmy. And, you know, my I, I mentioned my parents briefly. Uh, you know, I, I'm in my early 60s now, but 20 years ago, at the time of their at their deaths, uh, you know, I, I too was acquiring uh, insulin resistance. My lipids did not look good. I, I had what today would be considered, uh, you know, hypertension and and I was under the impression, I was taught, and, and therefore I believed that this was the genetic legacy that I was given. And yeah. ultimately, I had very little control over that. So, you know, I, I think the epigenetic story, the the as we learn more about how the choices we make and the environments that we are in can rewrite our book of lives, uh, you know, it, it, it began to empower me to challenge that paradigm. I, I see people every day, Jimmy who are maybe overweight and have type 2 diabetes, maybe they're depressed. And because of the family history, they're absolutely convinced that this is the genetic hand of cards that they right. have been dealt. And, and, and therefore, there's very little they can do 
to transform that reality. I hate that. And so if, if that is the perceptual landscape you are locked into, then it will it will be impossible to realize what is possible in your life. So I spend a lot of time, Jimmy, transforming the perceptions and the minds of others that can ultimately lead to behaviors that will serve them better than they're currently being served. How do you and, do and that? That Well, it requires trust and it requires relationship capital. It, it requires looking at somebody in the eye when you're when you're trying to help them, trying to teach them. It's having love and compassion for that individual. And and when you combine some nice knowledge and skill with some love and <laughs> compassion, you know, I think I, I think it does it does tend to move people in ways that might otherwise be more difficult. It may take a few encounters. Right. Uh, uh, but that's that's what trust capital is all about. Right now people don't trust the American healthcare system and no. there are good reasons for that. And we have a lot of work to do as professionals to regain that trust. I try to manage this one-on-one when I'm with groups. I, I, I leave it out there. I share a lot of my personal stories. Yes. I, I tell individuals whether they work for our organization or whether they live in one of our homeless shelters that I care about them, that I love them as human beings. And there isn't anything I wouldn't share with them that I wouldn't share with with the people who mean the most to me in my in my lives, and and ultimately at some point they have to discern and respond, uh, and if they need help d- responding, then then we try to help them, whether it's uh, getting them to the to the food pantry, improving the quality of foods that are in that food pantry, helping them with transportation, connecting them to some other people that are going through similar things that they're going through, some of whom have had remarkable success stories. And you know, it, it, it's, um, it's compassionate work, uh, and you, you have to be patient. You certainly can't be judgmental. And compassion and love in the medical system. A lot of people are hearing you talk today, Mark, and they're going, right, I'm lucky if he even smiles at me in the three minutes I see him in the doctor's office. So uh, it's definitely a different way of looking at things. And I, I'm really glad you brought that out. And I do hope that that becomes more the norm than the exception. But I do want to mention your your podcast, by the way. You have a podcast. That, that's why his microphone sounds so good, you guys. He He's a professional <laughs> podcaster as well. The Health Edge podcast.com is the website if you want to go check it out, but it's on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And you do that with a fellow medical doctor named Dr. John Bagnulo. Uh, did I say his name right? Yes, you did, Jimmy. Yeah, Excellent. John John is a PhD uh, nutrition uh, maven, uh, also has a master's in public health. Yes. And, uh, and John is an extraordinary fellow. Uh, he's climbed Everest. He he, he's climbed uh, his, Everest. You, you just kind of drop that in there like that's nothing. He climbed Everest. Yeah, yeah, whatever. yeah. John, John, John has been to the has literally been to the mountaintop been and to the uh, summit and back, uh, and 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 understands the food as medicine concept as nice. well as anyone. And so, so we have a we have a great weekly connection. We we do a deep dive. We we talk a lot about your work, Jimmy. We we reference. Uh, you know, you you realize that you become part of a culture, and uh, we're we're always referencing Eric Westman's work and Stephen Finney's work and Dominic D'Agostino's work, yep. and uh, and and really uh, like you and like everyone out there trying to awaken folks to you know a lot of courageous people who are at the vanguard, challenging uh, you know conventional wisdom and doing it in such a beautiful and effective way. Yeah, and I, as of the recording of this, I just got word just yesterday from a friend of the show, and he works with Wikipedia. They're trying to silence those of us that are speaking out 
with alternative viewpoints as it relates to nutrition and health. And so it's all the more reason why we got to keep talking and keep getting the word out there um, because it's too important. Absolutely, Jimmy. And I think anyone in this space can uh, continue to anticipate a growing resistance from that shrinking core of people <laughs> who, who stand to lose a great deal if yeah. this current paradigm melts away. And, uh, you know, I use Wikipedia, you know, but I'm also reminded that, you know, the Big Brother continues to want you. And, and whether it's a TED Talk or whether it's Wikipedia or whether it's something that, you know, uh, may decide to be censored in one of those large social medias, you know, the, the, the control of so much of what we're talking about continues to reside in the hands of a very small number of people. And they're, yeah. and they're going to be, they're going to fight back. And so I, I, it, it just gives me great motivation. Uh, and it's why your work is so, so important. I've been at this far too long to shut up now. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't stop. Never, never. Well, you don't stop either. Again, his name, Dr. Mark Pettis. Go check him out again. Listen to his podcast. The health edge podcast.com is his website. And Mark, thanks so much for joining us here today on the living La Vida low carb show. You are very welcome, Jimmy. Be well. Living La Vida Low Carb, this show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling bright. Cut up them avocados, fry some eggs, time to explore. The longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage, we're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal, yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused, don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey. The Living Low Carb Show.com. Woo! Disc. <laughs>